Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for Oak Hill Bible Church. And that is a thought in my mind, Father, even more when I'm traveling and I'm away for a period of time. It's, uh, it's so clearly the case, Father, that the family that we truly have in this world is the family of God. So that even as we spend time with others, people we, we, we meet, people we may love and care for, Lord, but there's something different and special about being in your family by faith among men and women who have grown up in different places and have different backgrounds and different cultural experiences. And yet, Father, we're all one in Christ and by the Spirit. We have one baptism that unites us and it makes all things irrelevant apart from our faith in Christ. And it gives us that sense of belonging that you can't have any other way, Father, that means nothing outside of of faith in Christ that will disappear with this earth, Father. Any other allegiance is so meaningless to us, and we see that so clearly when we're away from our family for a time. And I thank you, Lord, that I've come back, and my wife and I are back united with this body and able to join in fellowship and in prayer and study and worship. And I thank you, Lord, for that gift. And I also thank you, Father, that no fellowship is dependent on any one person or group that it is solely your church and your spirit and we all are part of what you create and do such that none of us father are indispensable and yet each of us father can be valuable and i thank you lord for the men and women who are volunteering and working at this place to make what happens possible for your glory and for the mission you've assigned to us that we would reach the world with your word with the gospel as ambassadors into a world that needs to know these things. And so, Father, let the word this morning prepare us in that way so that we might be an effective minister of the gospel, first in our own hearts and in our families, but also, Father, to those we may meet. Let this training develop not only our abilities, but our hunger to be useful to you in that way. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we open up in chapter 2 this morning, I think the best way to begin is to acknowledge a statement that I hope is obvious to everyone, and that is that people tend to value a message, to judge the value of a message, at least in part, on the reputation or importance of the messenger. We prefer to have our important news come from important and reputable sources, don't we? If you hear something big has happened in the world, you get some tidbit of news on Twitter or somebody in the street mentions it or you overhear it, what do you do? You you run home and you turn on the TV and you go to a a reputable news channel to hear the news, right? You don't go to the country music channel. You don't go to WWF. You don't find, hopefully you don't. If you do, I could probably educate you on some things that are going on in the world. But in any event, we look for our important news to come from reputable sources. And so it was for the Jewish Christians in the early church the readers of this letter that was written so long ago. The Jewish members of the church had always understood and recognized that when God had something important to say to the people of Israel in times past, he tended to use an angel as his preferred messenger. Time and time again, he delivered messages to Israel by way of angels. And many times, as we saw in previous weeks of our study, that the angel that delivered that message was actually the pre-incarnate Lord, called the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. But nonetheless, from the perspective of the people, they saw the word angel, they saw the effect of angels, the power, the usefulness of them, and so on. And that led them to have high regard, not only for angels, but for anything that came from an angel, any message delivered from an angel. 
And Jews respected angels all the more because the angelic realm itself exists at this higher state of being in their mind, this higher mystical place, right? Angels came in brilliant light and they came in mysterious ways. And every time they showed up, people got incredibly fearful and that required that customary greeting. Hello, I'm Gabriel. Do not fear. They always had to add that phrase because it was so inevitable. Somebody would be cowering in fear and they had powers beyond what men have. They have knowledge, it seems, beyond what men have. They don't die. They don't get sick. They don't suffer in the ways that sinful men suffer. They don't walk around in the dust of the earth. In other words, they were above men from our perspective. So when the early church received teaching on the new covenant delivered through Christ, the God-man Christ, some in the church, some Jews, struggled with where to rank Jesus in the hierarchy of messengers. Is he better than an angel? Well, He looked just like a man, so maybe he's less than an angel. Well, if he's less than an angel, maybe his message was less important than the messages we've received in the past from angels. You see the struggle. Jesus of Nazareth, we know from Scripture, was fully man and yet also fully God. But it was the humanity of him that presented a difficulty for the early church, for the Jewish element in the early church. Where do you rank a messenger who comes in a form lower than angels? Can a message delivered by a man be greater than the message that's been delivered in the past by angels? That's the dilemma that opens this letter. And for some in the early church, some Jewish members of the early church, their answer to my questions was no. No, Jesus cannot be more important than an angel. No, his message cannot supersede the message delivered by angels. That was their answer. They might acknowledge him that he was important and he was probably a prophet, And he seems like a really nice guy. But the fact that he took on human form means that his message must be considered secondary to the message delivered by angels. Now, in chapter one, as we looked at chapter one in prior weeks, we noticed the writer of this letter working really hard to convince his audience from the Old Testament, from scriptures in the Old Testament, that the father has always said and always declared that his son would be superior to angels. You remember in the scriptures we looked at in chapter one, the Old Testament demonstrated Jesus occupied this unique place in God's plan. He is the son. He is the creator. He is the Lord. He is the judge. He is eternal. And none of those things can be said about angels. They're created beings. They're not eternal. They're not the son of God. They are not the judge of the world. They are not the Lord of anyone. And in fact, the writer even points out from Old Testament scripture that angels work for Christ. They're employed by Christ, as it were. And in fact, angels aren't just working for the Lord, as we're going to see now at the very end of chapter one, where we pick up today, verse 14 of chapter one. Notice the writer goes a step further as he concludes his opening argument on angels. He says they're not just those servants of the Lord. They're also servants of you and I. Look in chapter one, verse 14. The writer says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service For the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Angels, friends, are ministering spirits sent out to serve us. They are not ruling agents. They are not judging agents. Only Christ rules, only Christ judges. Nor are they simply the fanciful ideas of Hallmark or Victoria's Secrets. Nor are they little fat babies with wings hanging around playing harps Just for our entertainment, those are earthly, ungodly, unbiblical notions of angels. 
And on the other end, you have the Jewish mistake of putting them at too high a rank, too high of an importance. The middle ground in this case is the truth, as Scripture provides. They are ministers. And that word in Greek, minister, it's literally translated in Greek as servant. They are servants, agents of God. And as such, the Bible says God made the effort to create them in the first place. The idea behind them was I need some servants in heaven and I have jobs for these agents, these servants. And if I were God sitting down with these angels after I created them and they were getting their first entry into the job, this is day one of the new job, it's orientation, and we're going through their duties. Number one duty at the top of the angel job requirements is ministering to the needs of those who will inherit salvation. You and I, the saints, Old Testament, New Testament, regardless, the saints, among all the duties God gave to angels, the most important duty that the Lord assigned them was the responsibility of serving you and I. And when you understand angels in that way, you keep them in their proper perspective in terms of their importance in heaven. God did not choose angels to deliver important messages in the past because the angels were important. It was their job. Right. If you got an important message delivered by a courier to your front door. It doesn't depend on the guy or gal that delivers the message for the message to have importance. They're just the messenger. You know the old saying, right? Don't shoot the messenger. Don't assign the messenger any responsibility for what they're bringing you. They're just the delivery men. And that's how angels were assigned to, to work for God. They were created for that purpose. But then there came a time in God's plan, his plan of salvation, his plan of the work of redemption. There came a time in history when it was now appropriate for God to tell us the most he could tell us about this plan to reveal not just the idea of how it would happen, but the person through whom it would happen. That is Christ. When we reached the point in history when it was time for the world to know Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus must die and his death is the sufficient propitiation for sin. When that was to be revealed, he didn't depend on an angel to bring us that information. Christ himself did it. And that's why the writer opens up this letter explaining the many ways in which Jesus is superior to angels, because he's left his audience now at a juncture, at a decision point. Now, this may not be a decision point you and I have, because I'm assuming, for the most part, we didn't walk in this morning confused as to whether Jesus was more important than an angel. I'm assuming that has been cleared up for you in times past. If if not, let's do that here. But. But still, for this audience, there was that confusion. So here's the juncture. Here's the decision point. They can choose to disagree with the writer. They can say, I don't buy what you're saying. But then if they do that, they're going to have to go back to all the Old Testament references that this writer has already given them. And they're going to have to show how the writer got it wrong, how he used those texts in the wrong way. They, they've got to be prepared to exegete to explain the texts of the Old Testament in such a way as to counter what the writer has said about Jesus. And they're not going to be able to do that because these texts are utterly clear about the importance and the prominence of Jesus. So on the one hand, you can disagree. You know, the old saying, everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. Right. The facts are the facts and the facts of the Old Testament are Jesus was the son of God, the most important in creation, the creator of all things and the Lord of all that's been made. These are the things the Old Testament has to say about the Messiah, none of which it says about an angel. So if you disagree, you've got a hard road to go because you've got to deal with the text. Or, on the other hand, you can't agree with the writer. You can look at the facts and come to the same conclusion that Jesus is, in fact, superior to angels. But if you do that 
then you naturally have to follow to another conclusion. If Jesus is, in fact, superior to angels, then it follows naturally that anything he delivered concerning the revelation of God and the plan of salvation must be superior to anything God entrusted to a mere angel. Now, that's important because as we go through the rest of this letter, most of what follows in this letter is a focused conversation on a comparison between what angels delivered in the form of the Old Covenant through Moses to what Jesus delivered in the new old covenant versus new law versus grace, Moses versus Jesus. These things become the focus of the letter. And if the first came by angels and the second by Christ and angels are lesser than Christ, then it follows naturally that the message Christ gave is superior to the one that came earlier. Now, that is not to say that the message of the old is irrelevant or worthless or wrong. It's simply to put them in their proper perspective so that we can see how they work together. That's the writer's point. And he has begun with the most important question anyone must address of Jesus and his importance. And that question is, who do you say Jesus is? That's the essence of this whole argument in chapter one and into chapter two. Who is he? Was he a messenger? Was he a prophet? Was he a nice guy? Was he a kook? Was he a lunatic? Was he a liar, as C.S. Lewis tells us? Or was he who he said he was? Lord. It's the very same question that Jesus himself asked periodically in his own Earthly ministry, you may remember these words in Matthew, for example, Matthew 16, as Jesus is beginning to show himself fully to his disciples, he reaches that point in chapter 16, verse 13. Now, Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. He was asking his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they say, well, some say John the Baptist and others, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, you notice the answers they give him. Now, they're not answering on their own sake here. They're answering what others say. Well, somebody told me or I have a friend who thinks this. You know, we say it to minimize the impact from our own point of view. No one thinks it's us. We're saying it's someone else. What they're saying is this is what we think. What is the answer, Jesus? They're throwing ideas out, hoping that he'll actually solve the question for them. So they say, well, John the Baptist, maybe Elijah, Jeremiah. We don't know. Which one did they not mention? You notice They don't mention God. They don't say, well, he's God. And Jesus responds in verse 15. He says to them, well, who do you say that I am? No more playing games. No more hiding behind the third person. I don't care what they say. What do you have to say about who I am? And then Simon Peter famously stands up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He states the rock, as Jesus calls it, on which the church is based. Our opportunity to be reconciled to God, to obtain salvation, hinges on our answer to that question. And I understand, as the saying goes, I am preaching to the choir for the most part, and I hope so, though I can't be sure. But it never hurts us to remember that that is the central question that starts the conversation. If it's not for our own sake that we hear this this morning, consider it as a reminder for how we engage the lost in the world on the question of salvation. It does not really matter how much they concern themselves with the entirety of Scripture or doctrines or fancy language or history or you name it. The real question and the only one that matters initially is who do you say Christ is? Is he a prophet? Is he a teacher? Is he a criminal? Is he a maniac or is he a son of the living God? Is he the Messiah? It serves no purpose to debate the merits of his teaching or to 
to seek to imitate his exemplary life. You know, we talk about people all the time who say, well, Jesus was such a good person. I just want to be like Jesus. Well, if you don't think he's Messiah, you wouldn't want to be like him because he was a liar. If he's walking around calling himself God, that's nobody you want to trust if you don't think it's true. Right. When I was in Oslo this last week with my wife, we were with some of the folks we were ministering to some of the families. And we went out to a restaurant bar place to go eat and, and just visit. And as we're sitting there, I had a seat next to me. At a, it's like a bench style table, you know, a table with bench seats. And I had a seat next to me that was open. There was space there. And this Somali, we find out later he's a Somali, walks up with a beer in his hand and says, can I sit there? Well, you know, it's kind of awkward. He's, he's inviting himself into your table. But we're all Christians and we're all sitting around. Ironically, we're all there to talk about the Bible. So, you know, you don't want to say no at that point because everyone thinks, well, this is a witness opportunity, right? So we've got to let this guy sit down. I don't want to be the guy to say no. It makes me look bad. But honestly, yeah, we say sit, sit down. So he sits down. And it becomes very clear very quickly that this, this man is either possessed by a demon or he's the agent of the enemy sent to disrupt what we're doing. He came with that intent. We didn't know that at first, so we start witnessing to him. And he says, I'm a Muslim. I said, okay. You know, in the Quran, it talks about Isa. Isa is the Arabic name for Jesus. I said, you know, Isa is in the, in the Quran. And, and he goes, oh, yeah, Isa, son of Mary. I said, well, that's true. He was born of Mary, but he's more than son of Mary. He was also son of God. No, no, son of Mary, son of Mary, not God, son of Mary. And on that one point, he became not only disagreeable, but, but even disruptive and a bit angry. And we never got further than that. Well, we, there's no reason to go further than that. There is nothing else to talk about. If that one point is not a point of agreement and we can't move around and get past it or, or work through it, then what else are you going to talk about if that's the point of the conversation? He didn't agree that this person, Esau, or Jesus, is the son of God. He thought, as the Quran says in some places, he's merely the son of Mary. If that question is a sticking point, then there's no second question. Remember, Jesus in the, in the Gospels made very clear he was the Son of God, the Messiah sent to proclaim the kingdom was at hand. He claimed to be equal, one, with the Father. He claimed to be the Creator. He was eternal. He was in the beginning with the Father and so on. If those things are not true, if you don't believe in them, then you have no choice but to declare Jesus as a liar and a fraud, or at the very least he was seriously disturbed concerning who he was. And you cannot commend the teaching or life of a person like that. That person doesn't deserve even a footnote in the annals of history. This writer, then, is making essentially that same argument to the Jewish members of this early church. He's asking them to consider the central question, who do you say Jesus is? And the very fact that some in this early church thought angels were superior to Christ and believed that, that fact was of such serious concern to this writer that it has led him to call into question their faith. Let me say that again. The fact that the church had members in this congregation, Jewish members, who were willing to say that angels were superior to Jesus is evidence in itself that for that group, Faith in the heart had not yet come. A true understanding of who Christ is was lacking. And friends, if you don't know who he is, then you do not have the salvation he offers. It's just that simple. Saving faith requires, requires an acceptance of Jesus as the Lord. Paul says it himself in Romans 10:9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and of course believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can't skip the Lord part. It's part of what it means to believe. Confessing, that is agreeing that the Lord is Christ and Christ is the Lord, that is the core of saving faith. And any church or any body, any individual who's confused on the importance of Jesus in that regard 
and especially if they're confused over his importance relative to an angel, that person is without saving faith. Is it possible, does it concern you that this church could be such that there are people who are unbelievers amongst them? I I think sometimes that's a challenge to people because we've made the term church synonymous with saving faith. And it is when you put a capital in in that word. The capital C, church, is the saved. But in this kind of a context where we use the word differently, church, small c, to describe the building and the people that sit in it, well, there's no guarantee that the people in this room are all universally believers in Jesus Christ. We didn't ask for your Christian card at the door. We didn't ask you to take a test. I mean, anyone can walk in, and we're happy for that. But that means that anyone can congregate in here without knowing the Lord, at least initially, if not forever. And that appears to be part of this writer's concern, at least on the outset of the letter, because his argument is on who Christ is. He's basically making the gospel argument to them from their Old Testament text. And at this point in the letter, we're going to reach one of five moments in this letter, seminal moments, really rhetorical high points in the letter that are well known. They're called the warnings. And Hebrews is very well known for its five warnings. And for the most part, these warnings are directed to believers. But it's my contention, and I think the text supports this, that the first warning, the one that sets up the letter, is a warning to the unsaved in the church. And in fact, you can divide this letter into five sections, each section leading up to one of these warnings. So chapters one and two comprise really that first section in the letter. And it's here at the beginning of chapter two that we get this warning based on what the writer's been talking about. All five of these correct some aspect of Christian doctrine or Christian duty. And the first one here addresses the first and most important issue of Christian doctrine for anyone. And that is the doctrine of Christology. That is, what do you believe about Christ? about the man, about the person. Who is he? And that sets up everything else. So look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Here's the beginning of the warning. He says in verse 1, For this reason we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Now in the opening of this chapter, he begins to transition in this warning, and it's built, the warning is built on the premise that he's set up in chapter 1. That is, the superiority of Christ to anything else in creation. That's the premise. Now here's the warning. The writer calls to pay closer attention, in fact, much closer attention, to what they have heard or what they have received from Christ. Given Christ's supreme importance as a messenger, he's saying we cannot ignore what he said. In fact, we have to give utmost attention to what he has said. Now, let's take a moment to look at that statement in a few pieces, because the underlying Greek words that make up the original text are really important to understanding what's just been said. Beginning with the phrase, pay much closer attention. That's actually two Greek words, and that is contrasted with Drift away. You notice that in chapter two, verse one, you have on the first part, pay close attention, drift away. They're in contrast. Those two phrases, particularly the second one in Greek, create an image of moving water. You don't notice that in English. It doesn't come through as well. In fact, the Greek word for drift is literally the word that describes flowing water, flowing water. So what the writer is doing, and this is really important, it's also very effective He's drawing a picture of someone floating in a boat down a slow-moving river. I want you to imagine you go down to the river in New Braunfels, and you're in the canal, and the water's low. It doesn't move hardly at all, but it's moving. Put yourself in that mindset. But at the edge of the shore, within reaching distance, is a firmly planted rock. Now, as you float by on your little tube, 
the rock catches your attention because it's prominent, because it stands out. You have nothing else to look at, so you look at it. And you consider it at some level. You consider it carefully, what it looks like, however it impresses itself upon you. But you never reach out, you never grasp it, you never stop your movement. At a point in time, it starts to become a rock in the distance. And as you continue to drift, you eventually drift so far away that it's no longer in sight. That's the image that this writer is projecting through his language. The rock, of course, in my analogy, is the message of the gospel. Christ himself as the rock of our salvation. That rock is waiting to be embraced if we are to be saved. And yet some in the early church, some Jews had heard the gospel. That's what the writer is referring to. And they had even considered it at some level for a time, but yet they had not embraced it. And of course, in light of what we've been talking about, embracing it means knowing Christ for who he claimed to be, the Lord. And as a result, the writer says, you know, you're not going to have this opportunity forever. You cannot expect that because the gospel is sitting there for you today and yet you haven't embraced it, but still you might do it in the future. You cannot understand that to be a permanent Opportunity. You cannot guarantee that that's not going to disappear one day. It might disappear because your attitude or interest disappears. It might disappear because your life changes. You move. You have some change in your world that causes you to drop off the scene from the Christian experience and you just never go back to it again. Or maybe you die. Actually, you don't have to put the word maybe in front of that, right? You will die. And of course, to die without Christ is to die lost for eternity. So the writer is saying... We have to pay much closer attention to the things we have heard, lest we drift away, lest we lose that opportunity. The rock must be embraced. And the evidence of their unbelief is found in their unwillingness to consider Jesus as one greater than an angel. As long as they still struggle with that, they're showing evidence that they haven't come to embrace him properly. At the very least, they're not clear on the purpose and the role of the Messiah. And so they're letting it drift out of their reach. Now, there is nothing shocking or unusual about suggesting that some in the church are not true believers. That has always been the reality from the beginning of the church. And friends, according to what the Bible says, comes about in the last days with an apostasy in the church. It's only going to get worse. Such that at some point in the future, we may find many, many buildings filled with many, many people, very few of whom are Christian. And yet on the door on the outside, it calls itself a church. That's the nature of the apostate last days. Every day in every building on Sundays that calls itself together in worship of Christ, men and women walk into that congregation and join themselves to that gathering without actually knowing Christ. By the grace of God, some leave the building knowing him. But many others, unfortunately, don't. They hang around the faithful. They mimic the culture of the church. They do all the churchy things we ask them to do. But they never understand and agree that Christ is Lord. Friends, that was me until I was in my late 20s. Now, of course, if you could go back in time and talk to me when I was still in that stage of my life and you had told me these things, I suspect, unless God opened my eyes, I suspect I would have argued you until I was blue in the face that what you were saying was not true. But I wouldn't have had a clue what I was talking about. That's the nature of saving faith. Until you're in the faith, you don't even know what you're missing. What Scripture says is you must embrace Christ as Lord. And then your eyes are open to the truth of all that comes with it. The writer began his letter calling out those in the church who continue to live in unbelief. And he cited as proof their continued reliance on the angels. 
And to that group now he issues a warning. So the real warning begins in verses 2 through 4. That's the last thing for the day. Look at verses 2 through 4. Here's where the writer says to this group who has not heard sufficiently the truth of the gospel. Here's what he says they need to consider. Verses 2 through 4. He says, for if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. Well, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Now, this is ironically the most serious warning of the five and yet the most subtle. And I say serious because the consequences are so serious. But it's not spelled out. You notice you were expecting something bigger, maybe. When I called it a warning, you may have been waiting for that. If you don't, then by gosh, you know, your dad used to give a warning, right? That, that's not coming across, is it? It's very subtle. And yet it's so significant. He draws a comparison between angels and the messages they delivered and the word that they spoke, in other words, to the one that comes through Christ. Now, what was it that angels delivered specifically? What is he thinking of here? The law. The Old Testament Law, the word spoken through angels is a reference to the law of Moses. That word, the writer says, is unalterable. Think about what he's saying for a moment. The law of God has no clause, no provision for amendment. You know, our laws do our constitution. You don't like the constitution. You get enough other people to agree with you. There's a way to change it. That doesn't happen with the law of God. I don't care how many people don't like it. It's not going to change. There's no provision for it. There's no amendments. There's no adjustments. In fact, Jesus himself said in Matthew 5:18, for truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. All right. That's an unalterable law. So if someone in the nation of Israel failed to heed the instructions found in their law, the writer here says, you know, that law that came by angels, it had stiff penalties. And if you didn't keep up with its demands, he says, you were subject to penalties. And friends, the penalty for failing to heed the law of God in Israel was the death penalty. There is no sacrifice in the law for intentional sin. There were sacrifices, there were ways in which you could regain your fellowship within the nation, restore yourself and come out from under the penalty of law, yes, but none of those provided for intentional sin. If you intentionally set about to ignore what the law said you had to do, then there was only one penalty in the law. You were to be cut off, that is to be killed in Israel. That's it. Pretty stiff penalty. Pretty inflexible law, you know. Not a lot of grace in law, is there, by definition. So their earthly lives were in jeopardy if they failed to heed what an angel had delivered to them through Moses. So likewise, the writer now asks in verse three, and I love how he does this. He says, so given that that's true, what kind of penalty do you think you're going to get if you neglect a salvation delivered by the Lord himself? If an angel's word caused you to lose your physical life, what penalty do you imagine God is going to assign to the one who rejects the message, his own son, the Lord of the universe? Delivered to you. In other words, if you ignore the salvation that's offered in Christ, your penalty is more than simply physical death. It's spiritual death. That's what he's alluding to here. The penalty must be greater for ignoring a message that is greater. And friends, there is only one greater penalty available 
beyond physical death. It's spiritual death. It's the one that puts us in hell, in the lake of fire for eternity. Now, you notice the writer doesn't actually answer it that way. There's no spelled out answer to the death or, or to the penalty. But the answer is obvious. It's implied. It's, it's like what you do with your kids sometimes when you, when you want to threaten them, but you want to let their imaginations take care of filling in the blanks, right? You tell them, wait till your dad gets home. That's like the worst punishment I could ever remember. My mom could have swatted me or taken things away. I mean, that would have been far better to me, as I remember it, than just her saying, well, you just wait till your dad gets home. I'm like, oh, gosh, I can imagine what he's going to do, and it's just worse than anything. That's sort of what he's doing here. He wants you to have in your heart this concern of what is the penalty for failing to grasp who Christ is. And he wants that to be significant enough that it causes a change. Now, he doesn't dwell on it, and we'll finish with this. The writer moves quickly back to reaffirming the truth. And I love this about the writer. You see his heart for the gospel. Uh, I think there's a role in ministry to the unbeliever about sin and about hell. Yes, you've got to start with the problem before you sell them the solution. But you don't dwell on the problem. Fire and brimstone preaching is only good if it moves quickly from that to the solution. And that's what he does here. In the second half of verse 3, he testifies that this salvation, this gospel, this word spoken by the Lord himself is a trustworthy gospel. It was delivered by the Lord himself. It was confirmed by those who heard directly from the Lord. Those who heard is a reference to the apostles, to those who walked with Christ. They confirmed the words of Christ by their writings, by the epistles. And notice the writer speaks as one who knew these apostles and heard from these apostles, but yet he sort of indicates here that he was not an apostle. You notice that? He says it was confirmed to us by those who heard, which would suggest he himself was not one of those apostles. We said last time that it's likely he was a man who accompanied apostles. In any event, then he goes forward. He says, then the Lord himself testified through signs and wonders in the early church and through the gifts that were given to the early church. All of these things, the writer says, are evidence for you and I that what Jesus said is true, what he said about himself is true, what we have to gain by it is true, all of it is trustworthy. It came from a superior source. Now, as you've already learned, the stumbling block in this church was their preoccupation with angels, but it goes deeper than that. The real concern in this church was Christ's incarnation and the fact that Jesus died in the end. If you're a Jew and you've grown up in a culture that respects God through what you've seen in the Old Testament, your image of God and of those he works with, like angels, or even the fathers, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the like, your image of these guys is like we think of Washington and and Lincoln, bigger than life, never did anything wrong, never told a lie. I mean, these things we say to ourselves because we magnify them to such an extent in our minds, right? The Jews had their uh, pantheon of heroes, and those were the men and women of the Old Testament, and God himself at the center of it all. And then they're told, yes, but the most important member of the creation, in fact, the creator himself, came in the form of man. And they're thinking, well, he came from Nazareth, and he was just a lowly carpenter, and he didn't even have professional religious training. And he had to walk around in the dust of the earth, and then when he finally came to the end of himself, he was killed. He was put on a cross. In fact, our own enemies, the Romans who occupy our land, crucified him. That doesn't sound like God. That doesn't square up with my image of a, of a powerful, omnipotent, omniscient God. The humanity of Christ was the stumbling block. 
And so to the wavering members of this church, the writer is going to move as we come next time into a discussion again of angels. But his turn now is from the superiority of Christ over angels to the need, to the importance of why Christ had to be lower than angels. Why that was important, why that was a necessity and not something to hold against Christ, but a reason to celebrate and to worship Christ for what he did for all mankind. That's where we come back next week. Lord, thank you, Father, for the chance to be in your word this morning and to uh, consider these things deeply. I do pray, Father, that uh, for those in this room and others who may hear later who have heard of Christ and have followed him at some distance, perhaps thinking him a wise man or a prophet or religious spiritual leader in some sense, but yet, Father, have never come to know him as he is, as Christ, the Lord, the, the one who is the maker of all, the Alpha, the Omega, I pray, Father, that what you have spoken through your word, using my mouth and the Spirit's teaching, I pray, Lord, that would be sufficient in this moment for those to know the truth and to embrace it and to not let it drift by. For we know this is the day of salvation, Father, that you have appointed, and it is a day that comes to an end sooner or later. We need every one of those days, Father, to be profitable for the sake of the kingdom, and I pray you would use it that way. Bless our time this week. Let us serve you, Father, in our whole heart and bring us back here if it be your will. I pray this in Jesus' name.